Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. On the desk in front of me, a new book by Keith Houston, Empire of the Sum, The Rise and Fall of the Pocket Calculator. It's a surprising presence, this book. Anyone who knows me even a little tiny bit would be astonished, frankly, at my keeping company with such a book, such a title. After all, my knowledge of and fondness for mathematics are rudimentary to non-existent, and the happiest day of my life, as I have often told people down the years, was when I finished my mathematics O-level examination, age 16, and told myself that this was it for me, with maths, forever, for life. What bliss! I put this aversion down to a memory of the seven-year-old me, off school for two weeks with flu, with proper influenza, and returning to find that the rest of my class had jumped ahead leaps and bounds into the wide world of maths. Time stretches vast and terrifying when you're seven years old. My classmates had mastered long multiplication in those two weeks, and long division too, and there I was, lagging, panting behind. I caught up with the long multiplication, get me, but long division left me baffled, and instead of teaching me its rules and dispelling its mysteries and helping me catch up, my teacher kept slapping me across the knuckles with her red ruler, its thin edge, so that my hands reddened and bled and the tears fell. And so long division and then trigonometry and calculus in their turn and all the rest of them became wrapped forever in a cloak of mystery. And yet, now here I am, leafing through a new book about the pocket calculator and what's more, finding myself stirred, moved, oddly taken with this story. What's all that about? Humans have always, of course, needed mathematical assistance in the form of Mesopotamian cuneiform 5,000 years ago, of finger counting, the abacus, the slide rule. We could never do all that calculating, just using our brains. And then, in the middle of the 20th century, the calculator came swaggering along and opened the world wide. Oh yes, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, the calculator was the niftiest gadget, the snazziest and most available gadget there ever was, and the most divisive. Some schools embraced it, some rejected it, some thought students should stick to their slide rules or do the sums themselves with paper and pencil, but some acknowledged the truth that calculators would do a service, would prepare students for the outside world of the 1980s, in all its high-tech complexity. And I remember this debate playing out in the course of my own school days, in which the calculator moved silently, smoothly, from being an object utterly forbidden, utterly banned from school, to one that was grudgingly accepted in the schoolroom, to being an item permitted to be brought into our school exams, the excitement Not that this did me much good, of course. I just entered numbers at random on my so-cool new Casio calculator and wrote down the answer because that was my way of doing mathematics. 
But the point is that I remember this moment, this instant, when the calculator was wrapped by the school in a bear hug as a symbol of modernity and of the future. Suddenly we all carried our Casios and our blazer pockets. Suddenly we were cool, we were cutting edge, we embraced our machine dreams. These are touching thoughts nowadays. They have an edge of poignancy, especially when I reflect on how our dinky Casio calculators conquered and bestrode the world and then essentially vanished, folded into other devices, became software instead of enviable hardware. They were shoved into cupboards as into tombs or the grave to moulder and be forgotten. They came and then they went. But while they were with us, they redesigned our brains. They widened out what was possible. They enabled us to glimpse infinity. Today, our lives are governed by other little devices which sit snugly in our pockets. These devices are infinitely more powerful than my Casio calculator ever was, and they command our attention, minute by minute, more than a calculator ever could. But just the same, there's a link between then and now, between what a machine did to us and for us then, and what it's doing now. Because our brains were being redesigned then, just as they are being redesigned today. Our neurons are firing and sparking in all directions as we look more and more to the machines that track and watch and rule our lives. I'm the operator with my pocket calculator. to think walking in Dublin was about getting from place A to place B. It was merely a form of transport and a frustratingly slow one at that. Walking for pleasure was something I only enjoyed as a tourist. In a strange city I can ramble all day, looking at the buildings, wondering about the people behind the facades. And then I got a dog. Once I began to tread the same routes daily, I realised how little I really knew them. What is the story behind this building, I'd ask myself, and sometimes the dog, as we passed yet another ornate Georgian or Victorian row, offices emptied by lockdown that were once homes to families, once warmed by fires and real lives. And then a friend mentioned the most curious local story of all, Portobello Gardens, a long-ago spectacle so fun, so garish and giddy, I found it hard to believe no trace of it lingers in my neighbourhood streets. Stretching from the canal to the South Circular Road across a seven-acre site, the Royal Portobello Gardens opened in May 1839. The concept of pleasure gardens wasn't new. The one in Marlborough Street, which closed in 1761, the duel over a woman which resulted in the death of the heir to the Earl of Meath turned out to be terrible for business, had dated back to the 12th century. At the helm of this new venture were Gilbert Sanders and William Drewitt, a former curator of the Royal Zoological Society of Dublin, 
that's Dublin Zoo to you and me, itself only nine years old at this time. Sanders and Drewitt's announcement of their new venture in the Freeman's Journal tempted the public with a splendid dioramic view of Mount Vesuvius and the city and bay of Naples. They promised that in honour of Queen Victoria's birthday, at dusk a grand representation of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius will take place under the direction of Mr Jingle of the Royal Gardens Vauxhall London and Mr George Jibe, the celebrated pyrotechnicist. This launch event proved so successful that a second eruption took place days later, the whole, the newspaper reporting, on a far more extensive scale than any hitherto attempted. Within six months, it was renamed Portobello Zoological Gardens, advertising rare animals, many of which had never been seen in Ireland before, including a sociable vulture, a bush kangaroo, a white-headed eagle and a Bengal tigress. Alongside this menagerie, it kept up the live music, as well as the Italian connection, promising visitors the additional sight of a representation of the destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum. Imagine, two beautiful ancient cities, their demise recreated while bemused seals and monkeys looked on across the park. The tragedy of history repeated as farce. Some of the most famous names in travelling entertainment performed there, including circus owner and equestrian Pablo Fanque, the inspiration for the Beatles song being for the benefit of Mr Kite in 1850, and tightrope walker Charles Blondin in 1860, a year after his sensational Niagara Falls crossing. During a show in London, he carried a stove onto the rope and, suspended high above the audience, cooked omelettes, which he shared with the fans below. He didn't get to demonstrate his culinary skills in Dublin as the tightrope broke and the scaffold collapsed. Blondin escaped uninjured, but two workers died. William Druitt was dead by this time too, having fallen into the Liffey while getting off a paddle steamer. From 1858, a pyrotechnician called Kirby had the lease on Portobello Gardens. When an arsonist burnt down both Kirby's house, oh the irony, and the music hall, the resulting claims for compensation were the garden's death knell. By 1864, the area was sold for houses. The lake was drained and St Kevin's Church, which is now in apartments, built on the newly reclaimed land. Portobello Gardens lasted almost 25 years. That's considerably longer than some contemporary fads. It wasn't the internet cafe of its day. Yet it is just as much a creature of the past despite its familiar-sounding problems, such as complaints about traffic and pickpockets. Smoking was an issue, the public was regularly reminded it was prohibited, which between the hot air balloons and myriad pyrotechnic displays seems an eminently sensible decision. Today, in street after street of solid red brick houses, Portobello holds tight to its secrets. There is no hint it was ever the site of a lake, or home to exotic animals, or volcanic recreations. Or that in long-gone summer evenings, people wandered freely till dusk on paths lit by Chinese lamps, while a band played, acrobats twirled, and fireworks the colour of jewels burst high into the Dublin skies. Tonight on trampoline The Hendersons will all be there later 
of Pablo Bank is there, what a scene. Over men and horses, hoops and garters, lastly through a hogshead of real fire. In this way, Mr. K will challenge the world. On silent wheels, a porter rolled my bed out of the ward. All right, man, he asked. All right, I said. Hospital visitors in the elevator made space. And down we went, floor after floor. Whizzing me along artificially lit corridors, he waved to a fellow porter pushing a comatose casualty. He left me in an annex, a large closed door before me. Clattering noises were coming through, and sometimes a high-pitched mechanical whirr. My breathing tightened. A nurse appeared. I'm your prep nurse, she said. Her sharp pencilled eyebrows rainbow-shaped like a circus artiste's. I'm inserting the cannula. You'll feel a little tickle. Thanks, I said, thinking this would be the only tickle I'd feel. That I'd been knocked out after it. But I wasn't. The clattering next door started anew. That's the sound of pans from the kitchen, she said. Is this deadpan humour, I wondered. Is she sending in the clowns? She slipped away. A nurse in blue overalls came along. He felt my foot. You're freezing. He got me a blanket. His touch was gentle. Are you going to knock me out? I asked. A plea, no doubt, in my voice. No, that'll be the anaesthetist, he said. He'll be along soon. Eventually, the anaesthetist strolled in. Casual, big man. He wore a green gown. I could see the muscles on his arms. We'll give you an epidural into your spine, he said. Then you'll feel no sensation below your belly button. Into my spine, I mouthed helplessly. His back was to me, his gown open, so that I could see ripples of muscle as he eyed the level of fluid in a large syringe. Did anaesthetists need to be this strong? I sank into my trolley. The nurse with the eyebrows reappeared. She and a gentle male nurse sat me up on the trolley. Arch your back, the anaesthetist said. And in that way, you'll open the spine to let me in. And where are you from? Originally, Tipperary, I said. Horse country, he said. And you, I asked. Monaghan. You have good football teams. Donkeys, he said. He was now slowly lathering my back with lotion. I felt like a greased pig. I always follow Monaghan in the Ulster Championship, I said. I'd endear myself to him, I thought. Where was your life station? he asked. Department of Agriculture, I said, trying to bend my spine for him. No, make an arch, not stick out your chest. I still wasn't making an opening. More squeeze, he said. And what were you up to in the Department of Ag? he asked. 
as if suggesting that in the Department of Agriculture you couldn't be up to much. I inspected farmers' places, I said, to see if they were in compliance with the Rural Environment Protection Scheme. And what if they weren't? I was supposed to find them. And did you find them? Curve that spine for me. Male nurse tried to show me how, making his chest collapse inwards, as if from a sudden puncture. Nurse eyebrows mimed at me to hug my pillow, humping her back like a cat. There's a twist in your spine, boss, the anaesthetist said. I was beginning to sweat. I rarely gave fines, I said. So you made negligible donations to the coffers of the state, he chuckled. Where did you work? Wexford, I said. Farmers were only allowed cut hedgerows at certain times. He had holidayed down in Wexford, he told me. And when are you allowed to cut the hedges anyway? During the months when the birds aren't nesting. Wexford, he said. Do you know what they call architects down in Wexford? They call them architects. They pronounce the CH the same as the CH in cheese, architects. Did you ever hear the like of it? The only county in Ireland where they call them architects. Suddenly, effortlessly, something shot into my back. Architects, he repeated. You'll feel yourself going warm down there. You'll begin to go numb. I felt the warmth. From my middle down, I was going dead as a log. His talk continued. Yes, down in Wexford, they have more architects than cheddar cheeses. And you, as you were so concerned for your natural environment, what I'll do for you is I'll give you a little tranquilizer, And after that, you'll be in cloud cuckoo land. He fixed a syringe into my cannula. I lay asleep. And while deep in my bones there may have lurked fears which Monaghan could never quell, it had happened that in distracting me during those pre-operation moments, he'd quelled one of the deepest fears we all harbour, the fear of pain. He'd sent in the architects. Thanks, boss. As I dedicated a new book to the teachers of alphabets, I had reason to reflect on just how important these people are. There are a lot of things going on in the first year of our lives, beginning with the realisation that those funny shaped things in front of our eyes are indeed our own hands, which can be moved about in patterns at our will. And What's even more interesting, that big people will watch us doing this. Eventually, one of those big people, by some extraordinary process, teaches us 
that those hieroglyphics on a page also have patterns that relate to words, which are a shortcut to understanding. And we're off. I remember my day well, the morning my maternal grandfather's teaching made sense. I don't know how long he was at it, maybe a few weeks, and I really didn't know what he was trying to achieve. But suddenly the light of seeing words was switched on. The wondrous possibility of reading was almost there. I would soon be able to sit anywhere turning pages. That is all I would have to do to live in different places. Teachers all over the world do that every day. Once I'd received the gift, for that's what it was, I believed that it would always be there. Although how a child could be sure of such a thing is baffling. But I was right. There it was, this reading. A reliable stanchion, an explainer of how to view the everyday or escape it. No matter what distractions, good and bad, there would always be books to fall back on, to lift mundanity up towards a star of importance, to join me to outside places. Growing up in County Monaghan, I became cognizant of a world larger than the one I inhabited. Courtesy of the visiting emigrated relatives and their children, at least one batch every summer holiday and others scattered throughout the year, we were given pictures, accents and conversation from all sorts of places. London, New York, Washington, Florida, Toronto and Belfast, which ludicrously always seemed further away than the other cities and more intriguing because of that. Arriving visitors from both far away and nearby created their own unique carnivals, some noisier than others. And then there was the glee of a lot of cooking and tea-making, the gradual relaxation of established boundaries, the endless conversation and eavesdropping. When the visitors left, there may have been a bit of sadness, more on some people's part than others, and more at the departure of some than of others. But then there was the settling back into our own lives, the rustling of things back to normal, and a return to the loyal books that had been left waiting, less opened, semi-neglected, while the visitors took precedence. With luck, there would be a few new ones left behind. Our faces took on a certain expectant hue when we rifled through the old pile to check out this possibility. Much like you see as people scoot around their local libraries to this day, their faces taking on a satisfied lambency when they find just what they might need. Their backs straightening as they clutch their prizes. I saw that same glow last week on a young man's face as he peered into one of those boxes where red books are left for strangers to pick up. You'd never know what you might find there. He moved on, holding his trophy, and hopped on the Lewis, taking his place 
among that historical army of those who read on buses and trains. On bright days, I fancy that's about to become a really cool thing again soon, a sanguine way of marking you out as a person of interest. None of which could have happened without the alphabet teachers. Here's to them this morning. My late mother-in-law was a most hospitable woman and most of my memories of her involve sitting at her kitchen table eating delicious food while she regaled me with the comic version of rearing nine children in Finglas in the 70s. She always looked back with fondness at her children's teenage escapades and situations that would have reduced a lesser mortal to a bag of nerves provided her with an endless supply of entertaining stories. My husband, her seventh child, seemed to be the particular cause of much of her mirth. Even stories of his accident-prone childhood, which resulted in her regularly accompanying him to A&D, usually on the bus, always ended well. He survived falling off vehicles constructed from pram wheels and wooden crates and cycling so fast down a hill that he crashed into a parked car. One incident in which he fell foul of the local Garda for playing curbs, a crime that involved kicking a football across the road from one curb to another, ended with a summons to the children's court. But that ended well too, because the exasperated judge dismissed the case and reprimanded the Garda for interfering in a traditional street game. Sometimes she would get my husband to start a story and then to speed it up, she'd take over the narrative herself. One day, while we were up to our chins in chocolate cake, she asked me if my husband had ever mentioned the time he ran away to be a circus boy. Well, of course he had, but she told me again anyway. He was 16 and had just finished his intercert. He had landed a summer job as a general gopher on a building site down in Moore Street. Every morning, he took the first bus into town and spent the day digging out foundations, pushing a wheelbarrow full of rubble and carrying buckets of cement before returning home to eat his dinner, crawl up the stairs and set the alarm clock for 6am. After a couple of months of this Groundhog Day lifestyle, he had saved quite a bit of money, but he was too exhausted to spend it. While the concept of a work-life balance had yet to be invented, he knew that there had to be more to life than work and sleep. So when the rumour went round the building site that Teddy Fawcett was looking for line tamers, trapeze artists and trainee clowns, the young man knew what he had to do. The following Saturday morning, he confided in his mother that he was running away to join the circus. She was tickled at the prospect of having a clown for a son, so she made him some sandwiches and he promised he'd come back for his things if he got a job. So, all dressed up in his red and blue plaid shirt and new Levi's, our young adventurer took the train from Amiens Street to Bray and walked the promenade to find the circus. 
The circus people, who were probably used to lads turning up like this, told him that Mr Fawcett was resting now and would be doing interviews later in the evening. He walked back along the promenade, squandered some coins on the slot machines, ate his sandwiches on the beach and had an ice cream cone for dessert. He decided to head back down to check if Mr Fawcett had woken up yet when the distant whistle of the Dublin train struck a pang of homesickness deep within him. He thought fondly of his mother and the dinner she'd be preparing, beef and onion stew and thick gravy, suet dumplings and mashed potatoes. And as it was Saturday, there would be pancakes too, dripping with lemon juice and golden syrup. He ran to the station and caught the train back to the city. His dreams of overcoming his fear of heights to hang out with trapeze girls, of putting his head in a lion's mouth and of making children laugh as he tumbled in the sawdust, all gently fading as the train snaked the crescent of Dublin Bay. But these dreams may not have completely disappeared. Our grandchildren have somehow got the idea that in another life, their granddad did work in the circus. And I see the dreamy look in his eye when the circus posters appear round the town. So when the big top is on the race course, I'm telling you now, I lock the door at night, put the keys under my pillow and hide circus boy's shoes. I'm not taking any chances. A slug of Jemisons. Hurtling down an auto route, Aunt Bubla, Mum and me are heading for the Italian coast, crammed inside a mini. Before we reach the alpine mass, Mum's poised to be the driver, to save her sister from fatigue and panicky claustrophobia. But as we close in on Mont Blanc, we see we cannot stop. Next thing we're bolting into Hades, a billion tons of rock, as if we're in the Perseids, the tunnel lights flash past, and lorries looming up behind are making Bubla gasp. I switch to scary, calming voice. Keep looking straight ahead. It won't go on forever, trust me. And pray her nerve will hold. The sky erupts in white and blue, and Bubla breathes and stops. Mum takes the wheel, and Bubla slumps, while I'm still reading maps. It all goes swimmingly until the road begins to rise, and Mum blurts out, my vertigo, and stops, and gently cries. Bubla, shredded, can't believe it, nor can Mum and me. We bail out in a horrid silence and gaze at plains below. Then Bubla opens up the boot, sighing like a Sirocco, and rummages around her bag to find her Jemison's bottle. She screws the top off, takes a slug, and lets the liquid burn. She licks her lips, another glug, 
like a baddie in high noon. She thrusts it at me, does you good, and takes the driver's wheel. My first and second whiskies sear me as we roar up the hill. So we progress with other selves. Mum quiet, feeling guilty. Boobla calm, except when she starts laughing hysterically. And I have left behind the sphere of essays, prose and poetry. Now nothing matters but the map that's vainly trying to read me. On this morning's programme, we heard Machine Dreams by Neil Hegarty. The Secret Gardens by Henrietta McCurvey. Send in the Architects was by Leo Cullen. Alphabets by Evelyn Conlon. Circus Boy by A.M. Cousins. And A Slug of Jemisons, a poem by James Harper. The music today was Pocket Calculator by Kraftwerk, performed by the Balanescu Quartet. Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite by The Beatles. Send in the Clowns, composed by Stephen Sondheim and sung by Frank Sinatra. ABC by The Jackson Five and Candyman, composed by Reverend Gary Davis and performed by Myrne Bradley. Evelyn Conlon's new book, Reading Rights, is published by Blackstaff Press. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And you can find out more about this and other RTE arts and culture programmes on the website rte.ie slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio app or to the programme website, which is rte.ie slash radio slash radio one slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.